Hard data on Game Pass has been hard to come by, but plenty of it was released in a GDC panel today, and a lot of it is astonishing. Good morning, good Thursday morning to you. I'm Shane Satterfield from Sifted, and this is Good Morning Gaming for March 24th, 2022. The show is in our patrons' feeds bright and early every weekday morning, and free on our YouTube channel for everyone else. You can find our flagship show, Game Face, by searching your favorite podcast service. You'll find the podcast versions of the rest of our content in the same feed you found this. This morning, there was a very interesting discussion at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco regarding Xbox Game Pass, titled Game Subscriptions, Is the Netflix of Games Inevitable, and What Does It Mean for Developers? It was hosted by Pierce Harding Rolls from Ampere Analysis, and it included a lot of the first real data on Microsoft's wildly successful Game Pass. Let's take a look at each data point that was presented. First of all, again, according to Ampere Analysis, Game Pass members play 40% more games across 30% more genres after joining. So the big question with Game Pass was, are people actually spending more time playing video games when they have so many choices at their fingertips, and the answer to that is a resounding yes. They're playing 40% more games. Not only that, having so many games just sitting there at their whim has convinced them to break out of their comfort zone and try genres that they normally do not play. Both of these data points are very, very encouraging. Next, player count multiplies 8.3 times when a back catalog game joins Game Pass, meaning Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. When it joined Game Pass, the player count went up 8.3 times. So if you're a publisher that has a game as a service that's struggling, or just a game in general that's struggling, and maybe you just need critical mass to see what people really do when they're playing your game, Game Pass is a great place to experiment. Next, new games from large publishers enjoy a 3.5 times player increase compared to similar games not on Game Pass. Now, I would argue that this data point is a little fuzzy because anytime you say compared to similar games not on Game Pass, that's not exactly a fair comparison. However, it appears that the publishers believe that this 3.5 multiplier is legitimate and therefore could convince more publishers to bring their new games to Game Pass much earlier than they have in the past. The next data point, similar new indie games get a 15 times player increase compared to indie games not on Game Pass. Now this, this number is so overwhelming it's pretty much impossible to ignore. Now, whether you want to believe it's 15x or whether you want to believe it's 10x, does it really matter? If you're an indie developer and you see anything near this figure, where do you think you want to release your indie games? Game Pass. I know anecdotally and personally, I have played way more indie games than I used to simply because I have Game Pass and they're just there every month for free. For example, I just played Tunic. I didn't get to play it as much as I wanted to, but I did play it for at least a couple hours, and that's more than they would have got out of me normally. 
Next up, there's a 3.5 times lift for games launching on Game Pass compared to Steam. This also could be construed a little bit as fuzzy math, because if something launches on Game Pass, then it can't launch on Steam. So you're basically saying, okay, we're, we're going to take some liberties here and say this game is very similar to this other game, and this game on Game Pass did 3.5 times better than this other similar game that launched on Steam. But as you know, if you're listening to this podcast... There are so many elements that go into each game, and so many more elements that go into whether these games are successful or not. Something as simple as a theme or a lead character could skew these results, so I would take that data point with a grain of salt. Another data point that probably is a little more solid is that social conversation increased by three times for a game when it's announced for Game Pass. This is something that's easily measurable. You can look at the online social media chatter for a game before it was announced for Game Pass, and then you can look at that chatter after it was announced for Game Pass. This makes perfect sense also. A lot of these games get very little marketing. So just the idea that Xbox would, from its Twitter account or its Facebook account or its Instagram account or any of its other social media accounts, would mention one of these indie games, it makes perfect sense that then that indie game would get lots of pin action from that announcement, and three times actually seems a little conservative. More data. Game Pass members are four times more likely to stream on Twitch. This one, I really struggle to pull any analysis from. Now, obviously, people who belong to Game Pass, I would guess they're a little more hardcore if they're willing to subscribe to something every month that gives them this smorgasbord of games to choose from, then they're probably pretty hardcore. And I would argue that most of the people who stream on Twitch are also pretty hardcore. But other than that, it's really hard for me to draw many conclusions from that data point. Next, Game Pass members spend 50% more than similar users. Again, I would go back to the idea that anyone who is on Game Pass is a really hardcore gamer. And therefore, sure, they're probably gonna spend a lot more money on games than people who are not as hardcore as they are. 50% more? Uh, I don't know, that seems like a lot. And then finally, post-sale monetization increases by 2.8 times after joining Game Pass. Now this data is really important because it shows that working with Xbox on Game Pass, not only do you get all the benefits that I talked about previously while you're on Game Pass, but there is an echo after your game has left Game Pass, and it continues to generate almost three times more revenue than it did before it was on Game Pass. This is especially important to games as a service, where you want to get people hooked on your game, and then after the game leaves Game Pass, you want them to download the client, and then stick with the game, and keep contributing to the kitty via microtransactions, DLC, etc. Overall, this first cache of data about Xbox Game Pass could not be any more positive. All the questions that we've had about how much pin action are developers and publishers getting, how is it working with indie games, I think we had a pretty good idea that it was a really good thing for indie games already. But seeing how beneficial it is for publishers to basically get their games on Game Pass as close to launch as possible, that's a bedrock data point that I'm sure Xbox is going to trumpet from the top of the mountain anytime it meets with a third-party publisher and is trying to convince them to get their games on Game Pass. And this is very, very important 
because Game Pass is not the only game in town. There are plenty of other game services, a lot of them streaming only, I'll grant you that. But PlayStation is working on a competitor to Game Pass right now. It has no data. No data like this, that's for sure. So eventually, it's going to be a bidding war for games between Game Pass and whatever PlayStation comes up with. Xbox having this data, having this established business already, gives it a huge advantage right out of the gate. And now for a couple more stories from the top of your SIFs. Publisher Warner Brothers Games and developer Rocksteady Studios have officially delayed Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League to spring 2023. It was originally scheduled to release in 2022, though it did not have a hard date. And a rumor of this delay made the rounds weeks and weeks ago, but now it's official. Here's the statement from Rocksteady Studios. We've made the difficult decision to delay Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League to spring 2023. I know a delay is frustrating, but that time is going into making the best game we can. I look forward to bringing the chaos to Metropolis together. Thanks for your patience. On June 2nd, it will be seven years since Rocksteady Studios last released a video game. That was Batman Arkham Knight. That game launched as we were just launching Sifted. That's how long it's been since Rocksteady has released a new video game. For a studio that revered, that is just incredibly out of the ordinary. And really the craziest part about this is that it was announced for 2022 at the Game Awards just at the end of last year. And within a month inside of 2022, the rumors had already been established that the game was going to be delayed. And then it took Rocksteady a full month and a half later before it finally admitted it publicly and said, yep, all the rumors were correct. It is in fact being delayed. Not only delayed, but delayed until the spring of 2023. That means a full year from now. So if you're counting on getting your DC fix from this game, you're going to have to shift your priorities to Gotham Knights. Reviews for Borderlands spinoff Tiny Tina's Wonderlands hit the internet today, and most impressions have been generally positive. It's currently sitting at an 80 on Metacritic, and most critics agree that it's a significant improvement on Borderlands 3. Who saw that coming? But the most common criticism of the game, ironically, is that it's too similar to the Borderlands franchise. So, if you want a better Borderlands game, it sounds like a solid purchase, and crossplay support doesn't hurt either. Fortnite raised an astounding 50 million USD for Ukraine relief from just three days of Fortnite profits. Three days. The total is more than any other private company in the world has contributed, and more than some entire countries. The number is so big that Ukraine's vice prime minister thanked Epic on Twitter. Mikhailo Fedorov also serves as the country's digital transformation minister, and he had previously called for PlayStation and Xbox to ditch sales in Russia. More money is going to be generated as the program doesn't end until April 3rd. So it could generate tens and tens of more millions of dollars. But really, this just goes to show you just how much money Epic is making off its Battle Royale shooter. Today, Ubisoft announced a Far Cry 6 Stranger Things crossover event. Beginning today, Far Cry 6 will have a brand new event going live inside the game called The Vanishing. It coincides with the free weekend of play for the game, which also begins today. 
While it doesn't appear that any of the human stars from the popular Netflix show will be in the DLC, some creatures from the show most definitely have made the cut. Far Cry 6 has been a sales disappointment for Ubisoft thus far, and the fourth season of Stranger Things doesn't launch until May 27th. So, this seems like a Hail Mary from the publisher, trying to revive interest in its open-world shooter. Nintendo Switch exclusive, Kirby and the Forgotten Land, also had its first reviews published today, and it appears to be a smashing success. Currently sitting at an 85 Metacritic average, Kirby's first ever 3D platformer is showing that the pink puffball can navigate new dimensions with ease. Probably the most encouraging thread across the reviews is that longtime Kirby fans will enjoy it just as much as the old games. Many reviews also cite its upbeat tone as a ray of light in what can be dark times. The one common criticism is that the game is simply too easy and lacks much replay value once the quest is complete. Others say too much of the content is repeated, but otherwise, it's all systems go for Kirby's latest. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll tackle today's boss fight. Welcome to today's Boss Fight, where I tackle random topics that may or may not be related to video games. Today I want to discuss something that came to light for me personally, recently, when I did something that I have not done for quite a while. I finished a video game. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. That game was Ghostwire Tokyo, and the only reason I finished it is because it's only 12 hours long. For the record, Here's a list of games that I've played for at least 10 hours recently, but I have no idea if I'll ever finish. Stranger of Paradise, Final Fantasy Origin, Elden Ring, Gran Turismo 7, Babylon's Fall, Horizon Forbidden West, Dying Light 2, and on and on. And that's just since the first week of February. That's a gigantic backlog that just started about six weeks ago. This would have been completely out of the ordinary for me just five or six years ago. Back then, I finished pretty much every game I played because I was writing a review for the game. Now that I'm running Sifted, I do not have time to write reviews. And I'll be honest with you, the video game review has kind of become irrelevant anyway. But if I were to want to do more of our game evals, which by the way... Our game evals on Sifted have custom scores, meaning you tell us how much you care about each category of a video game, and you get a custom score based upon your taste. But I quickly realized after we launched Sifted that writing reviews for games is so 2010. Instead, I'll spend 30, 40, or in the case of Elden Ring, well over an hour talking about games on Game Face. And for whatever reason, I've convinced myself, and maybe you guys have convinced yourselves too, that I do not need to finish a game to speak authoritatively about it on a podcast. Where you're not putting a hard score to the game, where you're just kind of giving your impressions and trying to help people figure out whether they want to buy it or not. So, 
Shifting from writing hard reviews to discussing games on podcasts has drastically shifted how I play games and how much time I actually spend playing them. Again, I used to have to finish them for reviews. I used to demand that my editorial teams finish games before reviewing them. And I'll be honest with you, it works. It worked at both X-Play and Game Trailers. Both of those publications are still known for their reliable reviews across years and years of data. So I don't think the concept of finishing a game before you write a formal review is dated or doesn't provide reliable feedback to viewers or readers. I absolutely think it does. And I still think that if you're going to put a definitive score on something, you do need to finish the game. Now, one of the common things that I would say when people would ask me, Shane, why do I need to finish the game before you're willing to publish my review? And it's because some games get a lot better or a lot worse the further you get into them. A good example of that is the game that I just finished, Ghostwire Tokyo. If you play just the first couple hours of that game, it seems awesome. It makes an amazing first impression. I seriously, the first two hours I spent with Ghostwire, I was like, hey, this might be a game of the year contender. But then I kept playing. And soon I realized that the game becomes extremely repetitive, that the environments become very repetitive, the enemies become repetitive, the mission objectives become repetitive, and it kind of limps across the finish line. A lot of games do that. Look at the last couple of Assassin's Creed games. First 20 or 30 hours, amazing. And then you realize you got about another 40 or 50 to go. And the next 40 or 50, a lot of times, your character becomes completely overpowered and you're just walking through the game. I think we're seeing some of that with Elden Ring. Really tough at the beginning, but now that the game's been out there and people have figured out builds that can help you kind of walk through the game, you're seeing people one hit or two hit some of the most difficult bosses in the game. So that's kind of been one of the pillars that I've stood upon for why games need to be finished in order for you to review them. And in the past, honestly, a lot of times, games would be finished before we would talk about them on shows like Invisible Walls. And people who didn't finish the games would be kind of the tertiary part of the discussion. But times change, and I'm at Sifted now, and we do not generate as much revenue as we did at Game Trailers, and therefore we do not have a staff the size that we had at Game Trailers. And so, I have to play every game, and Matt has to play every game, and it's completely unrealistic to expect that either one of us finish games before we talk about them on Game Face. And my question to you is, is that okay? Now, we are honest. Every time we discuss a game, we share exactly how much time we spent playing them, and I think that's important because it helps set your expectations. So sometimes Matt plays more of a game than I do, and he generally leads that discussion. And I'll just kind of chime in with a couple things that I noticed in the limited time that I played it. And then vice versa for me. If I've spent more time playing a game, I lead the discussion, and Matt will jump in when needed uh, with some anecdotes or some other observations that he's made with the time that he's played it. So editorially, we keep it buttoned up. We're not trying to manipulate you guys and make you guys think that we've played 70 hours of every game. Um, we're honest, and I think that's important. But do you guys feel like you get all the information you need based upon the amount of time that we're playing? Do you feel like after we've discussed a game on Game Face, and then you go and play it for yourself, that our impressions 
of the game, even though we may or may not have finished that game, are still valuable? Do you feel like we've led you in the right direction? I'm curious to hear your input because I hate it. Honestly, I wish I could play games and finish them. It's, I wouldn't say I have an OCD about completing things, but I do, maybe it is an OCD. I do have this feeling where I like to wrap stuff up and I hate having these kind of hanging threads in my life. And every game that I dedicate more than 10 or 15 hours to that I don't finish becomes one of those dangling threads. And I wish I could sit here and say, you know what? One of my resolutions for 2022 is to finish more games. It's just completely infeasible. So I would be lying to you if I said I was going to change. But I am curious to hear your impressions. Matt and I not finishing as many games as we hoped that we could finish has affected how much you rely on our impressions when you go to buy games yourself. Thanks for listening to Good Morning Gaming. I appreciate every single one of you who listens to GMG. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can do what the cool kids do and follow me on Twitter at Dinfire. And while you're there, follow Sifted at Sifted Games. After that, head on over to patreon.com sifted and drop us a pledge. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow, but until then, make sure you seize today because there will never be another.